Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining. This is Mandy Bishop, the host of the Managed Care podcast series for the American Journal of Managed Care. I'm the founder and CEO of Lifely Insights, Inc. I have with me today as my guest, Deanne Kasim, who is a renowned healthcare industry expert analyst, the founder and senior partner of Santasis Solutions, which is a custom research analysis and consulting group. Thank you so much for joining us today, Deanne. Mandy, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I know that we have had a number of conversations over the years from a broad industry perspective about the changing landscape of healthcare, and those conversations are only just just now becoming increasingly more interesting on a day-by-day basis. I'm very excited to have you on the show. So tell me, Deanne, I first want to start out with how did you get here? What first interested you in healthcare and, you know, in, in defining this space and in becoming an analyst and looking, you know, applying that lens to the industry? Sure. Well, I started out in healthcare, actually a pre-med major in high school and then undergrad. And I always was fascinated by medicine. I mean, this is something that affects all of us. If you have a body, then healthcare managed matters to you. Uh, but I also realized uh, that in my journey that Med school is something that you don't really dabble with, unless perhaps you have a silver spoon or trust fund, which I did not. Uh, It's expensive and it's it's a commitment. So I ended up working on the business side of healthcare. And there is a business side of healthcare, as we all know. There's a technology side of healthcare. So in working through different positions, both with hospital systems and health IT vendors and other consulting organizations, a federal government agency, I realized that there is so much evolution and so much change in healthcare, not just on the policy side or the technology side, but also in the market side, also in the economic side. There's all these different forces that impact the healthcare industry. And I find it fascinating to help companies and help organizations, even government organizations, look at what's going on in the marketplace and how can we really navigate those changes to find out not only where the puck is going to be, so to speak, but how do we put services and solutions out in the marketplace that really moves the needle on healthcare, that makes a difference. So it's not just helping an organization succeed, but how are their products and services going to really improve the healthcare industry and the quality and outcomes of care? Absolutely. And it's interesting. I, I think we're finding ourselves here and healthcare is in the crucible, right? So we we are seeing all of those market forces converging uh, with almost unprecedented um, market forces all, you know, putting their, their weight behind a, a new, some, something new has to be forged from the fire. So we're not yet sure what that something is going to be. But thinking about your analysis of these impacts, there are so many players and market drivers that are putting pressure on healthcare, not just transformation, but you know, a, ref- a reformation, really, of, of our healthcare industry as we know it. And yeah, they're, they're coming from everywhere. You, you mentioned this morning that uh, Mark Cuban is tweeting about what to do to, to redefine healthcare. How do you help sort through all of that noise to help your clients understand facts versus fiction and kind of help them understand which market drivers, which forces, which of those voices have validity that should be, you know, that should be incorporated into their analysis of where that puck is going for the industry? 
Sure. Well, there certainly is no shortage of, of people out there with opinions or policy. And I, I thought usually every morning I just do a quick check of what's going on in the industry news and world news in general. And I saw these tweets from Mark Cuban, which are very insightful in terms of he he thinks that there's too much money going to insurance companies, but yet is not an advocate of single payer. So I don't know how we reconcile the two of those statements. But what there's there's a lot of information. And what I look at is, first of all, being in the D.C. area, I have an insider's view as to what's going on in the policy, simply through a lot of relationships and sitting in a lot of policy meetings, which is helpful. Although I will add the caveat that with the current current discussions on Capitol Hill, really nobody knows what's going to happen next at this point, or at least not that I'm um, not that I'm connected to, which is making it a little bit of a, of a rough ride. In terms of the technology, that's what's so interesting about being an analyst is talking to different services providers, different solutions providers, to the actual end users themselves, whether they be in health systems or health plans, and finding out well, what is it that you're looking to do? What are your pain points? What are you trying to work on today? And what solutions are out there? And so it's kind of a bird's eye view of the marketplace in terms of what the market is looking to do. And we do that through our custom research or also talking to vendors and seeing, you know, what are you building and why? And where do you see the future? Because here's where I see the future and blending all of that information together to come up with some sort of a picture. Look, nobody has a crystal ball. If I did, um, I would be talking to you from my private island on which I would be retired on. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But, having um, a conversation about what happened 10 years ago and, you know, what has happened, what you, what you see changing in your, in your retirement. <laughs> exactly. My island will be right next to Richard Branson, somewhere wherever his island is. But uh, anyway, but we digress. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, nobody has a crystal ball. We can all just make the best use of what we have. But also look at trends, trends that for, you know, in many, many cases, just as a side item, so ACOs, you know, I remember when ACOs came out in the ACA and were created in this whole conversation. Well, there was many of us in the industry who started working in health, health plan IT in the early 90s that said, gosh, remember those PHOs, those provider hospital organizations? Is this PHO, PHO version two? Is this actually going to work? And sure enough, you have to look at, well, here's the history. Here's where we've been. But ACOs, just as an example, are different because we've learned from the mistakes of the 90s and why PHOs failed. So this is a little different version. And that's, I think, important to know the history as well as to try to predict the future. That's that's really interesting that you say that because in thinking about from a, a tech perspective and understanding these stakeholders, the level of uncertainty, right? So markets do very poorly, and especially insurance markets do very poorly with uncertainty. And the tech market kind of thrives on uncertainty because uncertainty creates opportunity for innovation in the tech market. So it's interesting. I, I think that there's this natural tension between you know, the, the business of medicine itself and the business of healthcare versus the business of healthcare IT, which can be somewhat disconnected and, and truly innovative if it is unencumbered with additional, you know, regulatory mandates and, and kind of this drive. And, and I'm seeing a lot of discussion around areas of focus for healthcare IT that seem to be on two lines. And the first is to reduce the administrative burden on providers that can come with some of the, the mandates for healthcare IT that we've seen over the last decade with, with meaningful use and other programs. And then secondarily, though, to increase the interoperability and the data capture for programs like mental health. You know, so mental health care and, and being able to create 
technology solutions to capture and more easily share uh, in a more timely basis information about mental health is kind of coming to the forefront in the house. So the way that I see it, there's this two-pronged and kind of almost um, you know polar opposite pathways for for technology, but that provides some really interesting opportunity for innovation. So in thinking about your space, how do you advise your clients on the best way to continue a path forward that's going to be meaningful no matter what the ultimate kind of political outcome is of these types of initiatives? Sure, excellent question. Well, as you just mentioned, there are certain trends in the industry that regardless of comes out in federal policy or federal regulation, we know these trends have, you know, the train has left the station and they're going to continue. So one that you just touched on is mental health. And I would add, even in the bigger scope of what's now being uh, a buzzword thrown around as social determinants of health, social determinants of health should just, it should not be a buzzword, but unfortunately, uh, a lot of vendors are talking about how they do it and what they do it. And there's different approaches, but at the end of the day, it's the idea of looking at more a, a patient or a consumer as a complete person and all the things outside the clinical setting that affect their overall health and well-being and ultimately their outcomes of care. So mental health is one of those, of course, transportation, access to food, access to nutrition, safe housing, what their social supports are. All of this is now becoming realized in the industry. And I know your work through Lifely Insights covers this very closely. But this is something that now I feel the industry is starting to recognize it's how do we actually make this happen in terms of developing a culture to actually in, take in this information and use it, putting processes and workflows in that actually use this and get it routed to the people that need to use it, including the consumer or the patient, I should say, to understand their own situation and putting together IT that can actually use this information and do something with it. Another area that the train has left the station is value-based reimbursement. And this, too, is very directly related to social determinants of health and the whole greater care of the whole individual and whole populations. Because if we're going to put providers at risk for reimbursement, we need to know actually all the things that are going in to impact quality and outcomes of care and what to do about it. Those are two hot areas that I see are moving forward regardless of policy or regulation. I, I agree. And it's interesting in thinking about that value-based care progression and the addressing of social determinants of health and mental health as components of health, right? And as vital components of health that have a material impact. Yeah, I don't see how we can address, the healthcare industry can address uh, a transformation that would be meaningful in, in a broad sense of the word. We have a $3 trillion industry. So when we talk about the things that can be impactful at scale, these are, these are things that do have an opportunity to be primarily impactful to that entire $3 trillion industry. But there's a certain sense of reluctance to look at these types of, you know, kind of alternative medicine or not, they're not an alternative medicine, not holistic medicine in that sense, but these are non-traditional ways of thinking for healthcare. These are non-traditional data sets. These are non-traditional uh, reimbursement methodologies. And, you know, they, they require the um, knowledge of and leveraging of non-traditional partners that sit outside of the healthcare system. So do you see kind of as value-based care continues down the path, do you see a new emerging partnership opportunity for like ACO organizations 
to start working with community service referral networks, to start working with, you know, the, the community-based nonprofit organization leaders to begin to holistically address this in order to really bend that cost curve? Absolutely. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because this, this must take a leadership presence between the provider side, whether that be an ACO, a health system that owns an ACO, a health system outright, whatever you have, and the health plan, the payer, as well as any other community organizations that are somehow involved in this as we expand upon and grow the social determinants of health and community care services uh, continuum. But leadership has to start that, and it has to be a win-win conversation, which sounds very easy. I mean, there's tons of books that have been written. Um, some of my friends included have written them about leadership and healthcare and culture and all these things. But this is what really is going to determine the success. The technology is a tool that will enable all this. But if we don't have actual partnership discussions from the get-go that explain what's being measured and why and what the reimbursements are and get everybody on board to move forward with this, then value-based reimbursement will sort of stall out in organizations that don't have all those factors in place. Right, I, I agree. And, and interesting in thinking about the landscape of innovation that's out there, there have been a couple of recent bids, Nevada being one of them, to discuss or bring to the table an option like the buy-in for Medicaid services, right? So you know, Bernie Sanders was running on the Medicare for all, but you know, the state of Nevada and some others have been talking about doing a, a Medicaid buy-in so that any citizen who doesn't qualify for Medicaid has the opportunity to buy in and, and Medicaid has comprehensive healthcare service offerings, right? So they include dental, they include mental health, they include uh, food, right? There are you know, food and transportation. There are all kinds of social and, and more comprehensive benefits uh, in a Medicaid plan. And we're hearing, you know, when those discussions happen, there's a, a lot of pushback from the provider community in particular because of the low reimbursement rates for Medicaid. And I have been wondering, and I'd like to put this question to you, if when we think about the uh, unpaid admissions, we think about the unpaid ED utilization for communities that are very high, um, you know, high underserved populations, um, is, do we think that that pushback is born of actual data? Do we think that there has been a comparison done of the amount of unpaid services versus the Medicaid reimbursement if every single one of those service utilizations was, was billable? Do you think that that type of analysis has been done or do you think that we collectively as an industry have kind of a knee-jerk reaction to what we know are very low reimbursement, you know, reimbursement on a fee-for-service basis uh, for these types of services provided? Interesting question. The stats that I see, have seen have really compared the decrease in the uninsurance rate in the states that expanded Medicaid under ACA, but I haven't seen a lot of stats looking at what the uncompensated care is. Now, some of that gets complicated because it's my understanding that uh, charitable care does get reimbursed to hospital systems somehow, whether it be under uh, Medicaid dish payments or there, there is some sort of federal funding that will offset some of that. And of course, there's always the tax benefits to hospital systems of writing that off. So I think it's a complicated measurement that would need to be made in terms of what uncompensated care was provided versus what the insurance rate was versus what the Medicaid expansion rate was, how all this ends up. Unfortunately, in my view, at the end of the day, 
Medicaid expansion and buy-in to Medicaid often falls too off, uh, often falls along political lines, especially how it's debated. There's conservatives that view it as a strict entitlement that should not be expanded, and there's more liberal, more moderate that are thinking, well, if we expand it and somehow decrease the rate of uncompensated care, then we all win because there's money that's going to cover that care. It's not an easy solution. Um, and there's unfortunately, again, too much political rhetoric that is guiding this. Uh, I know you and I have talked about this, but I would like to see some original research that could look at the possibilities of like what Nevada is, is, publishing, is, is proposing with some ideas that where people can buy into Medicaid and therefore get coverage because right now we don't know what's going to happen with the exchanges. We don't know if those, those cost-sharing subsidies are going to be extended. I really hope they will be, but you know, that's, that's part of the equation as well. Where do you go to get insurance if it's now cost prohibitive on the exchange? Yeah, I, absolutely. And I think that you made a great point is, you know, the, right now all of the discussions are tainted with politics and it would be very interesting to be able to free ourselves from that realm and, and to remove politics from the dimension of health and healthcare and understand what could be best to make the most number of people healthier and to provide doctors with the freedom to become and to return to their diagnostician roots, right? So how do we how do we help heal the system? How do we help heal the patients who are participating in the system? How do we help allow, you know, how do we help encourage doctors to be doctors rather than data entry clerks? But you know, we'd have to remove ourselves from the politics of that situation in order for us to, to be able to make decisions based on what's truly best from an outcomes perspective versus what's best from a financial or special interest perspective, right? Like what's best for the human beings who are involved in the system versus what's best for the organizations. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, you, if you think about it, it's a crazy time to be in healthcare. I don't think any other industry has had the sweeping policy and regulatory changes in addition to all of the technology that's out there, in addition to all of the different market forces that are going on in terms of changing provider reimbursements and what's going on in the individual exchange. I mean, this is a lot of change in a relatively small period of time, just in the last five years even. And it's, I'm, I'm amazed that as an industry, we've kept it together this much, but there's definitely a lot of challenges. No shortage of, of needs for solutions, and they're not easy. I mean, you know, if this was so easy to fix health insurance reform, it would have been done a long time ago. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think it's interesting because you and I are on the periphery of the healthcare industry. So we are able to take this broad approach and, and understand, you know, try to ha have conversations with stakeholders across all of the industry perspectives and have this you know, broader perspective, but thinking about what a primary care physician who is working in a rural, you know, in a rural setting who is trying to see every single patient who, who walks through their door on a daily basis, you know, the ability for that individual to keep up with this kind of ever-churning uh, ever status of healthcare uh, you know, from an industry perspective, from a mandates perspective, from a technology perspective, I honestly can't begin to imagine what it would be like on a day-to-day -day basis to try to keep up with all of the churn that is happening in the industry today if I were a practicing provider. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And I think that's why we've seen such consolidation in the healthcare industry, especially on the provider side. Um, you know, there's been a number of other experts out there predicting that this is pretty much the end for the small 
you know, one to five person doc practice because of the consolidation, because of the changing in reimbursements. Health systems have been hiring uh, providers for many, many years. And, you know, perhaps they're right, which is a change of what we've seen as, you know, traditional medicine in terms of you go to med school, you set up a practice, maybe you get a couple partners and you move forward. But on the other hand, the industry is evolving. And I think it's also the economics that are dictating why all of this has to happen because you just can't make the same margins and you can't maybe make your bills the way you could um, with all of this merger and acquisition and technology and regulatory change and reimbursement pressure. It's a lot of factors. It, it is. And getting back to the point that you made earlier about the rate of change that is happening in healthcare from a you know broad perspective, we're talking about an industry yeah, that's 17 years from you know, clinical discovery to clinical practice, right? You have an entire generation of doctors who, you know, who enter practice and then who, you know, essentially become seasoned practitioners by the time a discovery that was made when they are in med school ever actually becomes part of their diagnostic practice. And so you're, you're asking an industry that takes that 17 years and is very careful, methodical in its own acceptance of evidence and the generation of evidence to behave like tech companies and to be able to pivot like tech companies and be able to um, integrate a significant amount of change in their operations and in their fundamental technology and in their workflows in this, you know, substantially compressed amount of time. And I often wonder if the implications to patient safety, if the implications to, you know, to things like if we're, if we're becoming dependent upon technology, are we losing the ability to diagnose as human beings? Like if we become dependent upon clinical decision support, if we become dependent upon institutional protocols, are we collectively losing the art and science of being a, a, a clinician? Um, yeah, I wonder if this pace of change, the rate of change, this accelerated rate of change has dire consequences that we have not yet begun to fathom. That is a really interesting question. And uh, yeah, absolutely worth considering and really thinking about as a, a complete industry. I don't think we can ever lose the personal touch. I've seen a lot of discussion recently about artificial intelligence and where and where it doesn't fit in healthcare. I think the important thing to remember is whether we're talking about robotics or artificial intelligence or other types of technology-enabled decisions and or patient touch points, we are still really in version 1.0 of all of this. And this is how we look at technology in terms of how it can evolve and how it can support needs in the industry. But keep in mind, this is still the single version. We should never lose that touch point. All of these technologies should be there to augment, not to replace. And you know, along those same lines, I would also, I had this conversation with someone about self-driving cars. So he said, well, I'm not teaching my kids to drive. These are, his kids are, you know, eight and 10, because by the time they get ready for their license, they'll be self-driving cars. And I said, well, you're braver than I am. I'm going to wait for version 5.0 of a self-driving <laughs> car before I put myself in it. But right. you know, that's just my take is we've seen how things come out and they're buggy or, you know, the first version of the iPhone was nowhere near what the third version of the iPhone was, right? You know, technology scales so quickly that I think as decision makers and clinicians and other people in healthcare, it's looking how those can be tools and how they develop, not how they replace actual decision making or actual patient treatment. Maybe 50 years from now, we'll be in a different place. Who knows? But, you know, for now, it's, you're absolutely right. The art of medicine and the human touch point, the human decision making cannot be replaced. It can only be supported. 
And I, I think that that is an excellent point for us to end on. I, I think that that's so important, making sure that we all remember collectively to keep the human in healthcare, that that is fundamentally what health you know, healthcare is all about. Excellent. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today, Deanne. I, I really appreciate it. And I know all of the listeners are going to enjoy this episode of the Managed Care Podcast for the American Journal of Managed Care. This has been your host, Mandy Bishop with guest Deanne Kasim. Thank you so much, Deanne. We will catch up with you again soon. Thank you, Mandy. Great discussion. Really appreciate it.